Okay. In the introduction, I will have uh, spoken about the day in the bar where you pulled me up on my uh, badly formed idea of how the Berlin Wall went down. Oh, right, yeah. But I wonder if you'd tell the listeners about your experience of being there at that time. Ah, it was one of the most euphoric moments of my life, periods of my life. Really? It, was it must have been. went on for a few days, actually. It must have been. But you had got there the day before, am I right? I got there a couple of days before, and uh, my job was to go over to the east as a tourist, to bring the big tourist. No, it's all, it all very Cold War. I mean, it's Cold War stuff. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, absolutely. And uh, I have a sort of tourist camera, and I was supposed to find the people who were organising... Uh, uh, protests or protests not the right word um were agitating at the gethsemane church in east berlin so you say you you went over as a tourist so you crossed so you crossed over the berlin wall through the through the checkpoint charlie but you had to pretend you were doing it as a tourist even though you were a journalist on assignment that's right yeah yeah okay wasn't the first or last time i did that And, and and this was the day before or two days before yeah it was the uh, oh, it was the day before but a long day like it's early morning and the Berlin was four o'clock the next day so it was a long day a long long next day if you yeah know, it was a long yeah. period of time between my, my arrival and me leaving and uh, even though it was only two days it was sort of, and going through that checkpoint and being in East Berlin and coming back through it was there any sense of what was about to come absolutely none Absolutely none. Absolutely none. No. And even amongst ye, the journalists, nobody had any clue no. what was about to no. happen. No, no. This, no. this is the point you pulled oh, me the up. The reason on. I left is because some uh, somebody. I was at the hotel. I checked into the hotel, and uh, then we came down in the morning, and somebody faxed me some stuff with uh, headed. Uh, ABC uh, headed new printed, so it's like they basically just told the world I was a journalist. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I left. Oh, so you were in East Berlin, and then somebody faxed me faxed you with ABC News on the, on the and you said time to get out of here. Time to get out of here, yeah. And then the next day the wall came. No, 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 no. That night. That night the yeah, wall came. Yeah. No, what happened was that uh, I made my way back to Checkpoint Charlie. I was, I was going to say. Can I say shitting bricks? Yes, <laughs> but I, was, I was sweating bullets. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I was, I was deep because you know, we, you know, I grew up with the whole Cold War. I'm like, yeah. like, you know, it's like this is a serious mm. problem, mm. and of course, you know, it's, it's kind of an invisible problem because there's no goons walking around or anything like that. Mm. But the, you knew you were in enemy territory. Okay, yeah. there was no safe place for me to go to. I just had to get out. Okay. And uh, I never made contact with the people at Gethsemane or anything like that. I just wasn't there long enough. Right. So it's like I, it was a completely pointless thing, which also kind of burnt me a little bit because you know, like you know, I don't mind taking risks, but for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So I was kind of furious as well. Okay. So I was anger driven, and uh, what happened was uh, I managed to get back through Checkpoint Charlie, and like the relief was something else. And uh, I was even surpri- I was surprised how relieved I was, because but at that time I was just thinking get out, get out, get out, get out. I wasn't thinking about how I was feeling about getting out. Okay. I was just thinking get out, get out, and then I could actually feel stuff. Yeah. And it was just massive relief and like, what was I playing at? What was I even thinking about doing something like that? And there was like 
people who have done what you've done and never be seen again disappeared on the other side of the wall. Yeah, well, we know the history of Eastern Germany, yeah. of the Soviet Union, social states. Yeah, and yeah. Fact, you know, we know it's not a good thing to end up in a no absolute gulag somewhere. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. I'm like, you know, I wouldn't want to be a pawn in some kind of diplomatic exchange. Yeah, at the very best. And that's if you're lucky. So yeah, if I'm lucky. Yeah, and who'd, who'd want a cameraman? I'm like, maybe I'll record the producer, perhaps, but not yeah. a cameraman. And so then you well, got you got back over to the other side. Yeah, what happened was I got back over to the other side, and um, a guy called Alex Bruckner, who's a fantastic cameraman from Austria, he went in to replace me because they still wanted the story. I'm okay. like, the world goes, you know, still, you know yeah. it's not just about me. The world goes on. <laughs> And uh, so I got into the car with his, his um, other half. I was never sure whether they're married or not, but it's the other half. <laughs> okay. Uh, Francesca. And she's uh, Austrian as well. Really, really nice woman. Really together. And um, we sat in the car and I sort of... And uh, I said to her, you know, what should we do now? She said, I don't want to go back to the bureau, the office where we were working from. And I said, that's fine by me. I don't want to see those people either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I might chin somebody, might get them. Yeah. And so that's fine by me. And so I so sat there in the car, and uh, she was the radio was on, and she just said, "You know, the wall's coming down." I said, "What do you mean?" She said, "On the radio." And uh, and I said, "You know, the only thing we can do then is go to the Brandenburg Gate, which wasn't far. Yes, I don't know, I can't remember the distances, but it wasn't far. A few ten minutes, something like." That. So we drove to Brandenburg Gate and uh, NBC were already there. They already had something pre-planned. It wasn't, they weren't there for this event. Okay. So they, they had something there pre-planned. So we weren't the first, it has to be said. I don't want to make that claim. Yeah. Uh, a guy called Jeff Riggins was the cameraman. He's a fantastic cameraman as well. He, he, yeah, he's, he, 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 he deserves all the credit. But from my point of view, we got there and... Uh, did you have a camera with you at this day? Oh yeah. Well, I had Alex's camera because she put okay, the kit with her, yeah. And uh, and uh, and uh, it was getting dark now. It's about four four thirty. I can uh, starting to get very cold. I remember that. And uh, I got out, and this it was like um, it wasn't a very good film, but the encounters of the third kind. Yeah. Close encounters of the third kind. It's about people gathering. Yeah. It was really a lot like that. And uh, I, was, uh, I, was, I was just that's there and I was like, I'm feeling something, you know. I'm, you know, I'm looking around and bored people. To, there's no reason for me to go to that place at that time. Yeah. It's not on the way to anywhere. But people were sort of starting to turn up. And I thought, well, what's going on? And, and, and you know, it became, and uh, Francesco was on the phone. She said, listen, you've got to get down here. Tell him the people back in the offices this is all going down now you know yeah. in Germany and whatever and I was just there watching what was going on and uh, so she was I mean she was completely brilliant there's no question you know I mean uh, and uh, but I was watching what was going on and uh, and uh, the people gathering it was getting darker and darker and uh, I was uh, wondering what to do I, was, I, I, I didn't know why I was there in a sense I knew something was up. I couldn't figure it out. I knew the walls coming down, but that was such an unbelievable thing. Yeah. Um, I didn't... Um, no, I didn't uh, you, know, you didn't believe it at that time. I didn't believe it. No. I, you know, it's just like, okay, we're just on a bit of a wild goose chase here. Maybe, yeah. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, I'm not going to go put my hopes on this thing. Mm. So I was like, you know, a little, holding back a little bit, but watching what was going on. And all of a sudden, this guy 
got up on the wall, on top of the wall, and my heart, I was filming him, and my heart was going much as close, like, this guy's dead. You thought he was going to be shot. Oh, yeah. wall oh no, I just thought, oh, this guy's going to be dead. You know, he's in focus. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a bad joke. He's in focus. It's <laughs> a bad joke. <laughs> cameraman focus, is it? The cameraman joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's your right, don't die yet. <laughs> okay. Sorry, but there's a little part of your brain that does that calculation. Of course, well. of yeah, course. That's my job afterwards, what's yeah. being paid to do. And, uh, and I was watching him and my heart was thumping in my chest. I can remember now, just thumping. And it was like, and, and I just, and I didn't know what was going to happen next. I, I, I fully thought he was going to be shot, but I didn't know for sure. And the, the, these Germans put a water cannon on him, mm-hmm. but not on him, just to the side. So, because the, the water cannon hit you, knock you off a wall, no question. No yeah, problem. Yeah, no, no problem at all. Yeah. But they put it to one side, so he's getting the sort of spray of it, but not the the impact of it. Yeah. And I was, I was just filming. This is incredible. This is really incredible. He's not dead, and they're not going to knock him off the wall. And then somebody threw him up an umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, like Gene Kelly was singing in the rain. He sat there with an umbrella, and they, they were just pointing the water at the water. But, but they didn't have the pressure turned up enough. Oh, to no, 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 the pressure it. turned up. It was just the spray of it. You know, yeah. just this this tipping. This water was coming over us. It came on me. I was like, you know, deeply regretted being that close because <laughs> I never got a chance to get dry for the next 40 hours. So I was covered <sighs> yeah. in frost and ice for like two days. Oh, okay. And so that, but I didn't care. I was, I was, I was 30 years old. It was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. 48 years old, sorry. And, uh, and that was it and I just knew was, right then and then that it was all over the that girl. was the moment when they didn't wash the guy off the wall with yeah, the gun yeah. or shoot him or yeah, yeah. that change said okay this is it's happening and then within half an hour the place was packed the story got out people knew about it people knew that you weren't going to, you weren't going to die wow. if you want to approach the wall and people just sort of chiseling and hammering at it right away straight away yeah within hours yeah so that crowds, moment yeah. And, and, and whoever the guys were that were uh, pointing that water cannon. They knew it was over. But they knew it was over, but they, 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 they had a pivotal role in history there, no? You know, like they could have washed them off the wall, could have gone a different way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's... Yeah, absolutely, uh, yeah. They could have followed orders, but they did follow orders, but not very quickly. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's done. Work to rule, shall we say, yeah. yeah. And that, that feeling of being done, that feeling of relief, well, I think it was... Because uh, I spent the next 40... Four hours awake in mm-hmm. that place, and uh, and uh, and uh, we actually shot one piece. Uh, uh, I, I don't want to get technical now, but we actually shot one piece solely standing on top of the wall, just talking to people and the whole thing. We had a fantastic correspondent. The day before, would you have thought that was even possible to stand? Inconceivable. On the wall? Inconceivable. Yeah. So that was the most magic time of my career standing on top yeah. of burning oil seeing all that happening and uh, like you know like it got surreal at one one guy he's like a big guy he came over to me and says you know you need to fuck off said, what <laughs> this is for German people you need to go and he took a step back stood on some ice and fell over I was like <laughs> I didn't hit him. I didn't. <laughs> I was pretty innocent. You know, Jess was just looking at me. Saying, you hit him. Right? Hit him. Yeah. yeah, but it turns out that wasn't just for German people. That was for the whole world. That was for the whole world. He's so wrong, that guy. He's so, so wrong. wrong. Yeah. I mean, that was the, the the end of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War. It was immense, momentous. I, there's few times in history where there's 
one occurrence or one moment that changes so much. Yeah. I was very lucky to be there and uh, everybody who was there. I'm like, I could have stopped uh, my career at that point and been happy. Yeah. yeah and, uh, but, you know, two years later, three, yeah, two years later, I was at the White House in Moscow and uh, I was on the roof of where we were based and we could see the White House. And uh, the White House in Moscow is the place where the Jew, Jew is with a it's like a it's like a, a horrible uh, building, very large. That's where the parliament is. Okay, Juma. Oh, the Juma, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and uh, people hold up in it, and there was a siege, and brought, yes, and turned up in tankers, kind of crazy, stupid stuff. Yeah, but I was on the roof, and a lot of people got killed, which nobody ever talks about. Uh, and this is when was it um, Boris Yeltsin? And then yeah, started but, firing stuff into the Juma. Firing. That's right. Yeah. 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 I was sort of like, you know, got the military to attack the Juma. That that's time. right. Yeah. 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 The tanks were rolling through the streets of Moscow. You were there too. Yeah. Yeah. You were on the roof of the Juma. No, I wasn't on the roof. Of the Juma. <laughs> I was inside it later, but I wasn't on the roof. Of the Juma. <laughs> okay. God, it sounds like I'm very I'm breaking now. Don't. No. Like no. That. No. It's not. This. This is just it, Tom. This is always the way it's been. I dragged these things out again. Go. You really? You were yeah. there. I think, but, uh, but, but I want to say I want to share a bizarre thing. I don't really like the war stories too much, but the bizarre thing was that I was on the roof and I was I was filming and you know this nonsense going on, and this uh, all got a bit quiet for a while. And you know, you know sometimes nothing happens. And uh, so I wandered to the other side of the roof and I looked yeah. down the road just on Straight Street, and uh, I saw a group of people out there. So I got the camera and filmed. There's people queuing for pizza outside the Pizza Hut. Oh. All this is going on. Yeah, you know, the whole revolution, as you call yeah. it, quotation marks, and people were queuing for pizza at the, at the whatever it was, the pizza hut, or whatever they call these things. The life goes on. And no, no, but you now the fact is that was the West in Pinching. They didn't have pizzas before. Ah, I see, you know, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, so like, you know, it was a really significant thing to me. That was okay. like, you know, you know, the pizza guys won, you lost. Oh, I get what you're saying. So, so, yeah, the surrealness of it. So here you have the military attacking the Juma, but the the, the real impactful revolution and the sign that the revolution it's has always over. been won is yeah. is the people queuing for pizzas. Pizza. Yeah, I mean, it's a long way away. I'm like, it's good. I was six hundred meters away. I'm like, you know, it's the end of my lens. But you could see it. I could see it, and I was just sort of like, oh wow, that's that's what's really happened here. Yeah, they've lost. They've yeah. lost. This, this is the future here. Yeah. Until of course Yeltsin turned up. Oh, also Putin turned up. Yeah, yeah, that that that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but there's, there's these details that sort of give you significance because they never used a shot in the piece or anything like that. Nobody ever commented on it. But for me, it was like you know, that's you know, the Cold War ended in the on the, in November ninth in Berlin, but uh, it it really finished two years later in Moscow when mm. people came for pizza and not being worried about the parliament being attacked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they'd rather have the pizza than worry about the government. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. It's very symbolic, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, that's a dumb. Thanks again for that, Tom. I'm going to switch now to another part of the world. All right. To Iraq. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, and you told me a story, I think it was on our last attempt to record this podcast. Um, where you were being brought around and you came to the is it the Iraqi guards or the Iraqi top level of military their building had been bombed and there was a lot of papers that you guys at the Mohabarat headquarters yeah what happened was that we got into Baghdad uh, with the 3rd infantry division 
uh, one, oh, I, can't remember, I can never remember these dates anymore because this is 30 years ago, 20 years ago actually, sorry, 20, 20 years ago. And uh, we got in um, really soon after, like, you know, not the same day, but I think the next day. And um, we obviously went looking for stories and so obviously look for government things first, you know, like, you know, infrastructure, government, you know, what, what happened to the, who's running the place? Yeah. You know, how's it working now? And so like, you know, so we went to the Air Force uh, building, which was nearby, and that's Pancate. Okay. Yeah, you know, bombs down there. We went to one other place and it was equally unpromising. We went to the, then we went to the Muhabarat headquarters and they dropped a bomb called a JDAM right down the center of the building. So like, if you imagine, it's like, it was like an apple being decored. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, chances of surviving were very little. And uh, so there's lots of paperwork just spread out everywhere, you know, maps and stuff, you know, maps and documents and documents lying around. So one of our intrepid members of our party gathered up all this stuff. I wasn't okay. doing it, I was just filming. And so like, uh, so we didn't really pay much attention. And uh, we got back in the car and uh, somebody sort of, you know, so made the usual comment, oh, this is all about oil, you know, you know so. And we said, well, why don't we go to the oil ministry? Let's see it for ourselves, you know, because we could. Yeah. And who else is going to see it? And so, you know, let's go. So we went there. American troops were surrounded. The only place that was absolutely nailed down, secured entirely, that we couldn't get into. Was the oil ministry. Was the oil ministry. Yeah. It shows their priorities, which absolutely yeah. Yeah. people are well aware of now. Yeah. And, you know, I went to, a, a few days later, I went to a press conference, and then we sort of did an interview with this colonel, and... He was just really proud of showing us the fire control system, fire, the fire, what do they call it? Fields of fire for uh, protecting a, an, uh, an oil rig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's this so, you know, like, you know, it's so obviously about what it wasn't. Yeah. And, uh, no, we established that as well because in those papers that, that were picked up at the Mahabra headquarters, they came back and, you know, I'm, I'm compressing the timeline here slightly, but, you know, they were eventually translated, and in uh, one of them was a letter that had recorded. There's only one meeting between Al Qaeda and uh, Saddam Hussein, so they were no, and they didn't like each other. But this, this, this was used uh, as a as a as a link between Al Qaeda and Saddam in some circles to show to justify the invasion, basically. The war. Well, pre the invasion, they said there was a strong link. Yeah, and, so, and it turns out there was. An, only the slightest link. The slightest link. Yeah, Mark could write a letter to Saddam, really. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll tell the rest of the story off, off mic. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. No problem, Tom. But, uh, but uh, going back to the Saddam, the, 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 the Iraq thing, I mean, I mean, I, I, I love America, and you know, my grandmother's American, my brother's American, so I have no problems with them, America in itself. You know, I'm part American myself. But uh, what really, really, really troubled me, and this is what we're going to go into the philosophical side of it, is the fact that uh, the supremacy of technology to solve problems that may not actually need to be solved. Mm. And the, what I'm talking about here is that. Uh, that um, the the Iraqi civil service were paid manually in chits and 
things and paperwork and involved a lot of people and a lot of people got paid it's very unwieldy and to our eyes unwieldy and difficult but what it was was it worked and every friday not friday sorry every week people got paid not much but to live to live on and we're talking about six hundred thousand people here not like you know you know me and your uncle and stuff like that. we're talking about a substantial part of the population yeah. depending on the paycheck from the government and um and it was done in um you know, the, the way it's probably done for hundreds of years, just by signing pieces of paper, shipping them down the corridor, somebody else signs it, and, you know, somebody writes it, and, you know, you get paid, and it's all very arcane, if you like. And uh, the, the the idea was that we're going to do away with all that, we're going to get some computers. Now, anybody who's been anywhere near an IT system knows that they're crap. They never work first time, they don't even work the second or third time, and most of the times they only work, they limp along supporting the system or the, co- the company or whatever. I mean, IT systems are rubbish, and it's really it certainly bad. would have been back then, anyways, if yeah, they have improved yeah. somewhat. Now. Yeah, and we didn't, have, you know, they're, they're networks and stuff like that. But it was still primitive by our standards. Even today, we still have the bad habits of the IT people back then. Sorry, IT guys, but it sucks. You're rubbish. Hmm. You know, and you're the backbone of the modern world, and you don't do a good job. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Leave <laughs> with it. And uh, <laughs> and. Uh, what happened was that, of course, it didn't work. It didn't work the first time, second time, or any of the implementations. But, okay, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to it, we'll reboot it and start again. The problem was people weren't getting the money and getting paid. So there was no food, there was massive problems on the street. I mean, as I said, 600,000 people, not just a couple of hundred people yeah. or a couple of thousand. And these are people who naturally had no alternative but to, to rise up against the, the American occupiers, because from their point of view, that's. Saddam was bad, but these guys are taking away their meal, their yeah. food, yeah. en masse. So as bad as Saddam was, he, they were getting fed. Yeah, they were getting yeah. a few bars. If you stay and away from that, you know, the whole Saddam thing, you, you actually stand a chance of living a reasonable life. Yeah. But no, you had no life because you had no money. And you, that 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 kicked, that's what kicked it all off. That's what kicked off the uprising, the yeah, backlash. Yeah. yeah. Well, but nobody likes to talk about it. But also, no, what happened and no. how it went down. Uh, that, that's why the and Halliburton were uh, criminals. They should all just be taken to the Hague and hung. Halliburton. Oh yeah, Cheney, Dick Cheney is just an evil motherfucker. Yeah. Sorry, you can sue me. You know where I live. Yeah, no, I think I don't. I think there's been documentaries and movies made about that. I don't think you're going to be sued, Tom. I think it's uh, yeah. it, it's pretty out there. But what happens now with the American military and the likes of Halliburton going in fixing what they've destroyed and yeah. taking all the but the technical point of view you can sort of see from their point of view that oh technology works it makes things better as a, an absolute fact and technology doesn't as we know from climate problems and stuff like that technology doesn't always make everything better no it makes some things better but always 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 comes at a cost yeah there's always unintended consequences yeah. there and I think like and I've definitely got this from from talking to you, is that uh, the hubris of the West to to think that everybody wants to be like us. Yeah. To think that, oh, this is how we do a show. It's a massive problem. It's a massive problem. This is something I'm like, if if you sum up my 28 years doing that stuff, it's like, you know, the one thing, I'm like a scratch record, but we've heard me time and time again, it's the fact is that just because we think about the world the way we do doesn't mean that other people think about the world in the same way mm. at all. Yeah. 
they may share some of the same ambitions for a nice house or a nice car, but beyond that, there's very there's fundamental differences mm-hmm. in how people see the world, and they're ingrained cellular level differences. And, like, and they're, know, they're now, not necessarily wrong or yeah, right. Yeah. It's not in that realm of right and wrong. Yeah, like one of the things that puts me off a lot of um, psychology stuff is the fact that it's sort of so Western-based. Mm, absolutely. You know, you sort of take a lot of those experiments that kind of, you know, the psychological experiments and do them, say, in the Indus Valley or you do them in the, uh, say, some other places in India or you do them in the sort of deepest Africa or you do them, you're going to get totally different results. Mm. You know, yeah. Guaranteed. And yet we sort of accept these psychological truths as real truths. Yeah. And, you know, it's wrong. It's simply wrong. It's just not how... Just because somebody likes a car who lives in a mud hut doesn't make him like us. No. No. Yeah. And we shouldn't assume that. And we, sh- and we do go around assuming that, oh, you know, because we sort of share the same love of things, that we share mm-hmm. the same attitude to life. Things in life aren't the same thing. And we, we, we tend to think, and, and this... This, I would argue, is overwhelmingly the way things have gone since since the Enlightenment. Is we tend to think the society, the civilization that has the power, is correct, is right. Because might is right, yeah. Bec- it is a might is right situation. So because they can dominate, they're automatically right. Yeah. So I feel like we still go the Western world, I don't take Ireland out of that context, Not so. we, we still go to these other parts of the world with the idea, hey, look, we're right. We can demolish your whole village if we want to. Of course we're right. We're the powerful ones. Yeah. What does right mean in this context? I mean, uh, it, you can think about this as... as Cortez and the rest of the guys going down to the European colonizers that yeah. went all over the world. And because we had the power, we had weaponry, we had technology to sail, we had uh, armor and, and different weapons that we could attack and overpower the indigenous tribes. We have lived as if we'd done that because we were right. The, you know, there the, the was... But God on our side, it was the traditional way. Yeah. But we had God on our side. But but there's nothing about there's nothing about Western civilization that gives us any moral superiority to indigenous tribes anywhere. Not inherent, no. No, no, not inherently. No. But we still somewhere carry the seed of that rightness because of might, of that rightness because of technological capabilities, that we think because we're more technologically able, we're obviously better. When, to my mind, it's fairly obvious that when it comes to the environment, it's not the technologically savvy people <laughs> that are doing uh, anything good to the planet. I mean, the the, the lower in scale. No right, yeah, always, yeah. Now, yeah. Now, uh, there, there's places in the middle, but but if you go right down to the people who are living in the Amazon rainforest mm-hmm. and are living, and indigenous tribes in all parts of the world who are living. In the same way as the half a thousand years, not many left, granted. We might look at those people as stupid and as less, and many people in the West do. But people living like that are not the ones who have caused the sixth extinction event. They're not the ones who have poisoned the seas and the rivers. Mm-hmm. They're not the ones who have caused climate change to a large extent. It's yeah. the other side. It's the technologically savvy side. Now, I'm not saying we're not using technology for good things in our yeah. in our uh, attempts to 
combat the, yeah. the climate yeah. problems. With most of the modern medicine, I'd be dead at six. Yeah. yeah, I would have made it this far. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. No, the point is, it's just, it's just the, the thoughtless application of the ecology, but that's sort of mm. incorporating into a greater, wider ecosystem. Mm. Yeah, so like, you know, it's like, you know, um, you know, we do things because, you know, they're inherently good because it's technology and therefore things are going to get better. That's the argument with the, the um, Sam Altman and the Open Eye guys at, at uh, Andre, oh, the Harowitz people, you know, Andreessen uh, Harowitz, A16Z people, say, you know, they had a manifesto uh, last year saying, so, you know, technology, you know, we have to be optimistic about it, you know, it's going to save the world and stuff like that. These are Open AI. Uh, well, Open AI, Sam, Sam Altman, uh, the, the AZ, AZ, uh, A16 people are uh, a venture capital company. Okay. Uh, uh, Mark Anderson came up with Netscape, I think, about 25 years ago. So he's relevant, right? Mm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but but the point I'm making is that uh, you know it's just this un 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 unquestioned uh, idea that technology in itself is an undoubted good. It, there are good parts about it, but it's always at a cost. We always and we always mm. have to evaluate that cost. But we always think that the cost is going to be like so much less than the benefit that we think. But the problem is that the cost is sometimes equivalent or worse than the benefit. Mm. You know, we sort of like, you know, sort of like, um, all right, the great ones, electric cars, for example, right? Mm. You know, everyone thinks, oh, unqualified, good. I went to Zambia and I went to those copper mines and it's an unqualified bad as far as I'm concerned. Go into that a bit more. Yeah, you know, sort of What's like happening in Zambia? Oh no, because there are these copper mines that um, are um, mainly, mainly mined by the Chinese. Is that cobalt too? Has that been coming from? I don't know. I, I, I I'm not really into geology too much, but okay. I, mean, I just want a copper mine. Okay. Yeah, so I don't really know. And uh, they were obviously getting copper to put in our cell phones and stuff like that. And uh, But I went to a, a mined out copper mine that okay. couldn't be done wasn't efficiently able to be done by tech, you know, trucks and drills and yeah. scoops and stuff like that. And so they moved on to another location, but there's still sort of copper back at the original site. So we went back to the original site and uh, people were digging tunnels without props, mine props, oh. you know, and uh, it was sandy soil oh. and they were digging it out and you know, whatever little scraps of copper they could get was how they would make their living. Who would they sell that to? Who would they give? Oh, they send it to uh, you know uh, people who then send it onto the, the the main market. You know, yeah, and meet uh, into uh, middlemen, middlemen. And you're, and, and you know, and that was just nobody should be happy to do that to put some food on the table. Mm. And was there any sort of like are Apple or Samsung or any of these people coming back to that mine that that community? Yeah. these are people. In, uh, and saying, you know, we're going to build you some nice houses, we're going to sort of take care of it. I know this, you know, we're going to build some schools, you know, that's, that's not happening at all. And, and you know, when sort of Tim Cook and all these people go, or Jeff Bezos and sort of, or Elon Musk, so, it's like, come on, your whole thing is based on modern day slavery, it's evil. Mm-hmm. And, and, and add some, another, like, the, the point that you made at the start there. Not that I'm against what they're the, doing, but I mean, I think there's a really bad aspect to it. Yeah, and, and, and that there's a, there's a cost to each benefit, and not only that the cost can outweigh the benefit 
but the ven benefit is very much in front of us because all the benefits are advertised to us. All the benefits come across our screens and they're, they're being sold to us in one way or another. The costs, however, are not necessarily in our line of sight and they're not necessarily for the Western world. I mean, the Southern Hemisphere has taken the vast chunk of costs when it comes to yeah. Uh, the copper mining and cobalt mining and all, all the different South America and copper mines is, has a terrible history there too so while the northern hemisphere, western world however you want to phrase it gets most of the benefits and they're very visible mm -hmm. the costs seem to be left to the less well off and are far less visible is that fair? well I mean, you wouldn't want to call any of these people racist, but what you would want to call them is uh, inhuman because I was, I spent a day, I was there for a couple of days, but I spent, I was at the end of the day filming, I was going back to the car, just packing my stuff up, and uh, this, this kid that I'd sort of seen around, I hadn't talked to him, but he's around, he came over to me, and he was like 16, and the way he spoke, and the way he held himself was a, a person of dignity and intelligence. You know. He, this was a kid that had been in the mine. A kid that had been in the mine, you know. And when you sort of like treat, see it as a, these people as individual human beings, not just sort of dark Africans in the middle of nowhere that nobody's ever going to see, except for people like me, occasionally once every 10 years. Yeah. You know, and you know, I know when I'm sort of reflective enough that, you know, my phone, my computer comes from people like this guy, who was just like me, but in the wrong place at the wrong time. Nothing to do with intelligence, nothing to do with, uh, uh, oh, being born in America, therefore somehow especially, especially privileged, which is sort of very obnoxious to listen to sometimes, mm. you know. Not European, you know, with that sort of cultural heritage and stuff like that, you know, that we sort of like are very snobbish about and probably need to sort of get, need to take a reality check on that as well. Yeah. It's just like you, me, he'd sit this, t you know, this guy, just like they're human beings. Yeah. Again and again and again. The one thing I learned from, you know, I talked about Black Hawk down earlier, you know, it's like, you know, those aren't extras falling over, those are human beings who've just been shot and, and in real life they're going to be lying and they're suffering terribly before they pass yeah these are real people yeah and it's, and it's like they can greenwash however much they like which I think is criminal mm. because you know what they really should be doing is taking all the vast amounts of money going back to those communities that they're destroying and saying let's help you out you've done us a great service you made us a lot of money let's help you out it doesn't cross their fucking minds doesn't cross their balance Sorry books. Sorry about the language. It, it doesn't cross their balance books, I'm afraid, Tom. Yeah. That's what it doesn't cross the balance books. Yeah. No. Uh, so, but I mean, sort of, I mean, I, I mean, expanding upon that is the, to, you know, sort of, why, why, does it, why do we have this situation now? And sort of like, you know, one of the things that I've, uh, I've worked, I've been around a lot of communities that are uh, tribal, Mm. In the east end of London, where I grew up, people are very tribal. You know, you're, you're loyal, more loyal to your community than you are to the cops. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a little bit here as well, as you yeah, know. Yeah. And, uh, and I've always been fascinated by that aspect, is the fact that they, this community stuff, like the Taliban, right or wrong, they did what they needed to do to survive, mm. using the structures that were, and information that was available to them. Yeah. I don't agree with them at all, but they did, from their perspective, it was the right thing to do. And part of that was because they were so socially uh, interlinked and uh, and the fact they survived was because they stayed together and now in the West we had this situation where people are becoming so I'm all for individualism I'm an individualist, individualist capitalist myself there's no, no, no I won't quibble on that point but uh, it, but when you become too individualistic when it becomes all about you become isolated and you become atomized and you're not operating within your social structure properly and you become weak and you can bump depressed the suicide rates here in Ireland and elsewhere as far as I can gather are shooting through the roof it's because people don't have they've substituted their technology benefits for real human contact mm-hmm. and, and it's really a terrible price to pay for being able to go onto Twitter or threads mm. or Instagram it's a terrible price to pay for just a bit of entertainment because it's not just a bit of entertainment it's a distraction from the people that matter which are around you yeah and uh, when I was at college with you I was standing in the corridor one day and there was a girl next to me and she was texting and I wasn't really paying attention and, but the girl opposite was texting and then I realised after a little bit they were texting each other I thought, that's just insane mm. No, 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 ten feet yeah. apart. Why the ten yeah. Maybe they didn't want me to hear the conversation, but I mean, yeah. that's still insane. And so, that's a really bad indicator of where people are going. It's like you're more real on your phone to each other than you are in real life to each other at close distance. And people like Lucy, sort of going, you know, like, like are dealing with real people. Yeah, they're not numbers or avatars, uh, avatars or stuff like that. It's not. It's not a game that you can play. Or you have to stand there with your heart and your mind and your experience and your education and uh, you live you die mm. and then you've got to be a human being after that as well yeah and interact with the rest of the world yeah and sort of like you know I worry that uh, you know my children's generation just don't have that sense of the importance of bonding yeah yeah and like good or bad you know like we just we need a uh, we need to work out what we're going to do and we need to work out how to do it together if we're going to solve our problems. And not all our problems are going to be um, solved by the same thinking that created them. So, like, As in the... the, the yeah, the, the scientific method. The it's scientific the method, yeah. But the instrumentalization of everything. Um, mm-hmm. The Ian McGilchrist idea of the, the, the left side, right side of the brain and how the right side of the brain has become more dominant that's right yeah fantastic and, uh, fantastic yeah. idea I love yeah. how they, they, they and the for a quick scan the, the, the right side of is it the right side of the brain the right side of the brain there. so um, the, ba- the basic idea with Ian McGilchrist is that he he uh, discovered or observed from uh, very old um, very primitive animals from like you know, millions and millions and millions, hundreds of millions of years ago that always there was a neural uh, separation between the the brains and in most animals and birds, it's actually separated. In the human beings, we have a corpus callosum that joins them together, which is kind of unique. 
But the purposes of each side of the brain was not like the Roger Sperry stuff of the 60s, which one, one side was artistic, one other side was mechanical. But the purpose was that it was nature's way of solving the problem of how do you eat something and not get eaten yourself. So you would have one brain that was just focused on a very small, narrow part of the world, which was the food that you're about to pick up. And another part of your brain was just aware of everything that was going on around you. So the slight disturbance. And we see that with birds when they sort of throw seed at them, they, they gobble away any disturbance, they fly off in mass. Mm. And, uh, and from that, he uh, suggests or argues really well that, you know, sort of like we've developed over time into this amazing function that uh, the left brain and the right brain are joined together. So we have this left brain. Uh, Part of the left brain, part, you know, left, left side part of our brain that's devoted to, uh, not devoted to, but because the spread between the two, but mainly devoted to sort of grasping things. That means that it has to have a very strong sense of the material world to grasp things, you know, to get food. Mm-hmm. But we have another part of the brain, the right side, that's sort of geared towards sort of, uh, uh, detection and being aware of what's going on around us. And have, it has it has a a better grasp of the holistic view of things, should we say? That's right. Yeah, and like you know, sort of like you know, and we see this in every day as humans. Like you walk into a room, like for most normal people, you get a vibe right away of what the room's about. Yeah, you know, unless your right brain, you know, working in tandem with your left brain, but you know, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, the, it's the, the big picture. The the left brain tells you where the door handle is the, the left brain tells you how to switch the light on the left brain yeah it does all the small things but the yeah. right the right brain keeps it in context i guess keeps it yeah, keeps yeah. a hold of the larger context yeah it keeps it you know keeps a big could, perspective yeah and that, that could be seen as a global context yeah yeah and uh what mcgillchrist argues and what i think we're arguing here is that where the left brain, the emissary as he calls it, that's right, yes, yeah. is, is, is becoming far too dominant. That's right, yeah. He argues it really well in his book, yeah. The Master and the Emissary, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he documents it throughout history until, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of the part, like, say, you know, except during the Renaissance period, mm-hmm. you know, it's very clear that people were expanding their minds because there's all sorts of colours introduced mm-hmm. and perspectives introduced and things like that into art and work. Mm-hmm. You can see it. You can see it. And, you know, and now we've got to the stage where you have pictures on the wall and you have to have the artist write on a little piece of card beside it what it's all about. You know, it's not there for you to interpret, it's there to be explained, I think, which is a very um, right brain, left brain activity. Yeah, I think... Uh, well, like one of the reasons that most modern artists are so proud is because, you know, like, you know, you have to be told what it means. You know, when yeah. you look at a picture, of, you know, a great picture... Uh, I remember I was at a place uh, uh, at an exhibition at the Tate Gallery and I was walking through it and one picture just jumped out at me and I said, wow, you know, so much visual stimulus there. But this one picture was alive and it was a Jackson Pollock picture. And I was like, that's fantastic. That's why he's a great artist. Because yeah. it's alive and living. You understand it even though it's abstract. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's not understandable or relevant. Impactful. Impactful. But I think uh, I think uh, seeking to understand it might be not part Pointless. of the right brain's uh, yeah. purpose either. That purpose might be the yeah. wrong word. But the, the left brain is what seeks understanding and what seeks explanation and categorization yeah. and 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 uh, practicality and and utilitarian ideals. But I like as to be analogous about the left brain and the right brain. I see the left brain 
sorry, 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 everybody. I see the left brain is operating as the American military. So the American military is the emissary. It goes and does the bidding. And the people are what the master. So the American military is always subservient to the government because mm-hmm. the government is in power and the government represents the people. So you can see that as the master. It's supposed to have a holistic view of everything. Right, yes. And the military is operating as the emissary. So they are going out and doing the bidding of the master. Yeah. So what if the military, the left brain, as Miguel Crest seems mm. to suggest, almost detaches itself from the master, says, you know what, I'm actually good. I know everything. I don't need this holistic view, this idea. I'm well, good. What's that both a fascism there, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, but that seems to be kind of uh, the, the, the pure instrumentalized ideals mm-hmm. that we're coming up with now. And then the specialization in subjects. You know, uh, like I know you studied philosophy and you studied classics and you studied a lot of these things, but mo- mo- most of college now seems to be like a conveyor belt, an instrumental conveyor belt. You're going to college, what do you want to be? You, you, oh, you, I, want, I want to be something in IT, I want to be a banker. Okay, yeah. here's the course you do it and that's it. Very few people go to college, what do you want to be? I just want to be better. I just want to learn more about the world. Well, well, I, well, I think so. From my, my uh, university experience, and uh, uh, I think I may have shared this with you before, is that uh, the humanities is really uh, important. I think you made the joke. Uh, you made the joke. I know you did. You know, sort of like you know, philosophers tell you what to, and engineers can make anything, but the philosophers will tell you what to make. You, I, I think you said that. Uh, yeah, I think I saw it as a meme. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But you, I remember you saying that, and I thought that's very, that's very accurate, actually. Yeah, yeah. Engineers yeah. can tell us what we can do, and philosophers should tell us whether we should or not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah, I, I also I always remember that. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, that's that's it. That's it's it. That's the emissary and the master too. Yeah. I see that as that kind of relationship. Yeah, but I mean, the thing is, you know, um, I just sort of go back on your um, story there. It's like you know, we have to have them working together. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and you know, I worry about uh, as I said the atomization and the individualism because that leads to suicide. Because mm-hmm. if you don't have a community, you're by yourself, and you're yeah. a very unique person if you can stand up for very long. Now, the solitary confinement is the worst punishment in prison for exactly. a reason. Exactly. For a reason. So even in prison with the worst people in the world, yeah. we'd we'd rather be in social interactions than be alone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like you know, so it's no laughing matter. It's very mm-hmm. And the suicide rates are a testament to the fact that we're losing the ability to, just, you know. I was back in there, when I was a kid back in Connemara, you know, I've lost the accent now, but when I was a kid back, we had a, a local character called John Diamond, and he was just, I wouldn't know how to classify him now, but he was the, uh, he was the guy that, uh, what happened was, I, I won't describe him actually, I'll, I'll tell you what he did, what he used to do was just wander around and wander into people's houses, and people would give him bread and a cup of tea. And he had no sense, you know, like he always have a jacket and a shirt, no matter what the weather. And he'd come into our house and my mother would always just give him a cup of tea and a sa- uh, slice of bread or whatever. And uh, he'd go on and he'd go to the next house. And that's how he survived. Wow. Not in a cynical, clever way at all, because he was a bit simple, right? Yeah. But the community as a whole just took care of him. And looked after him. And, uh, you know, and, you know, he lasted a very long time. I think he only died just uh, like 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Because the community took care of him. He wasn't able to take care of himself. Yeah. He didn't have the sense. But he, he, he uh, you know, 
and I think that magic has gone. It's yeah. sort of disappearing. Yeah. And you know, sort of like um, all the places I've been to, all these so-called developing countries, these so-called third world countries, which I'm not supposed to say anymore, but all these countries that we sometimes find a label to separate us from, the one thing that sort of is very consistent is the sense of community that people look after each other. And what you see here, that's developing more and more is the fact that people don't look after each other, look out for themselves. They stop acting as though they're in a the community. They claim their own individualistic thing, which is only the last thing they've probably read on the internet. And uh, they're isolating and atomizing themselves and that leads to a terrible problem of uh, disassociation from the community that you're supposed to, or, you know, that would help you. But Charles Taylor, the philosopher Charles Taylor, calls deviant individualism. Yeah, and but you know it's not deviant; it's uh, predictable because it's uh, happening. Mm. It's the inevitable consequence of people just living on their iPhones. But well, I guess his argument is that. Um, Sorry, I missed it. No, no problem. Um, individualism has brought a lot of good things about. Has brought uh, individual rights and freedoms. Yeah, and yeah, stuff, that, yeah. stuff that we all. That, that, that we all buy into and nobody hears argument against that. Of course not. But, no, no, but, like, but no. the, but I don't other people brainwashing me. Yeah, you know. no, but yeah. Uh, of course. But the, but there is there is a level we seem to be surpassing um, where people think everything is about the individual and where things start, begin and end with the individual. Yeah. And uh, I think that's what Taylor was getting at when he's saying individualism is necessary, individualism, but what we've got now and what we're heading further into yeah. is a deviant form of that individualism. So it's it's not the, the helpful progressive type of individualism anymore. It's turning into something regressive. Yeah, yeah. It's something counterproductive to the aims of what the... aims of what a... a, a you know, we have to assume that we're always trying to build a better, a better society in our own little ways, in our own little contributions, mm. either through the vote, uh, the ballots, or through our inventions, or through our activities in the community. And but if we're not, but all those are predicated on the fact that we're actually doing them in a communal sense. Yeah. Once we start doing them stuff in an individual sense, like if I start just doing something for myself, okay, I'll probably make some gains, probably get a nice house and stuff like that. But what else do I have? What's that worth? Yeah. Yeah. What's that worth? And you know, when people die, you know, you don't sort of say, "Oh, he had a great BMW." <laughs> yeah. Nobody ever says that. No, nobody ever says. This is, you know, he was either well loved or, you know, no, you know, he's a bit lonely. But you know, like you know, they always talk about it in terms of relationship, never yeah. in terms of what you owe. I've actually never seen that on a gravestone. BMW 3.2i owner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just doesn't, yeah. No, but it's, it's not how we're remembered. No, it's not, it's not how we talk about it. It's not how we, uh, you know, when you're, you know, I'm much older now and all I really care about is my children and my friends. Mm. I don't really care about a car or a house. I, you know, I need a house and a car to get by. Yeah. Because it's cold and wet up here. But I mean, I don't dream about it. I mean, yeah. when I was a teenager, oh, I'd love to have my own house, my own car and be a big guy. But you know, like that, that fades when you're sort of like, relationships become more and more important yeah and uh, they're very easy to lose if you don't work at them yeah and you know and you know what the technology like you know Instagram and all this uh, social media stuff is it takes the work out of relationships makes things easy and like you know like Tinder for example and stuff like that straight oh. hookup 
Tinder, uh, Tinder is eBay for humans, and I don't care what people yeah. say. That's what we're doing. We're put, <laughs> putting, putting, putting ourselves up there on shelves with descriptions underneath. And I'm sorry, it's just too much like eBay. Yeah, I mean, going back to descriptions underneath, this is a really another thing to say. I think I mentioned to you before was that uh, I heard somebody uh, describe somebody else as a millennial. Uh, yeah. And I, I was kind of like really upset by it, and I couldn't figure out why was I upset. And I was just walking along thinking, this is a really troublesome thing. And uh, then I realised that these uh, categories were developed by brand managers in an mm-hmm. advertising agency. You know, they're just a way of, uh, the way of categorising human beings so other people can make money out of you. And for yeah. you to actually take that language and oppose it on your fellow human beings, it's, it's insane. Yeah. You're, you're, you're taking a step towards, uh, oh, I'm a millennial, I'm not Generation Z. It's like, who cares? Yeah. Who absolutely cares about any of yeah. A brand manager in advertising agency, that's their job. Yeah. Fair enough. That's not a problem. You walking down the street and calling somebody else another, or a boomer or whatever, that's you being a biased, prejudiced, ignorant motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, I get you. I get you. And it's evil, and it's really a bad way to go. So drop all that kind of language about categorizing other people. There's something something you said to me, Tom, uh, before. Sorry about the language. <laughs> don't worry about it. There's, there's something uh, you said to me before about uh, about your experiences in Africa and, and, and these other places and, and, and experience and time with people who lived in tribes. And yeah. you were getting the point across to me that although they might want this stuff, that we have, they they do not want to be us. Yeah, and you said yeah. you said that it took two hundred years for us to be conditioned into this work life that we have now. They don't want that, and and, and that was something that you said that made me reflect. It's like, oh yes, we actually have been conditioned into this way of life, into thinking yeah. that this is the proper way to live and that we should be working in a box eight hours a day and then having our enjoyment at two days prescribed yeah. at the weekend and then back to the grind again. And and, and to, to people in the West, that just seems normal. That actually doesn't seem normal. That seems right. If you're doing that, most people feel like they're living right. But for other people in many other parts of the world, that's an insane system. That's like why? Why would why would you live like that? See, I mean, like, when I was uh, one of the great things I studied at the university is classics, and you know, and uh, the, the the guys at the University of Galway are just fantastic. Mm-hmm. If you ever want to do a classics course, go there. And uh, but one of the things you learn right away is that you know the way we think now about ideas like democracy and stuff like that it was all thought out and worked out and developed 2000 years ago and uh, those ideas survived um, long enough for people like uh, the, for, for like the they survived in the population long enough for, uh, for developments like the industrial revolution to take place and uh, and that was all built upon the fact that you know, what? even though they were wrong about science in a specific sense, they were right about it in the sense that, you know, everything could be sort of logically argued and developed from there. That reason was the fundamental mm. cause of the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment, was the, 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 the appreciation and understanding that we can reason things. You know, like from Descartes, you know, like that's, uh, that's, yeah. you know, that's, that's one beautiful piece of work on, you know, it's just pure reason. 
You don't have to subscribe to it or agree to it. Yeah. You, you have to understand that it gave a framework for thinking that reason is a good thing. Reason itself, yeah. devoid of what you're reasoning about, is a good thing. Yeah. And uh, so you had the... And you end up with uh, the schools in uh, northern Germany in the, the late 1800s that were just fascists, you know, and they built the schools to a, get the boys to become good soldiers in the military and be good workers in the factory and sort of have some administrative school so that to teach you to read and write. Mm. And, you know, and all our desks are sort of like in a line and it's, it's totally unnatural way of, you don't see that in a, you know, uh, the other, you know, the natural, you know, and, uh, I hate the whole terminology of surrounding this, it really uh, bothers me, I haven't really sort of worked it through, but I'm like, you know, in, in different societies, you know, like people sit around and just chat together and they sort of see their whole bodies and it's in a circle usually, you know, here we are regimented in rural rows and this is how it's going to be for the rest of our lives. Yeah. And they if you stay regimented, the, the promises that you get the house and the car. And yeah. I think the house and the car are very great, great, but I'm like, that's just not the thing to be aiming for. Now. But I guess we, we we talk to the people in the circles, we're like, yeah, but if you give all this up, you can have the house and the car. And a lot of them were like, you know, the house and the car is cool, but you, you can keep it. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. We, we don't get it. We're like, yeah. how do you not want the house and the car? The American dream. Yeah. I think it's, we're so embedded in the culture. And the problem is that, you know, sort of, myself included, our natural instinct, instinct, sorry, instinct is to think that technology is good because we see so many benefits from it. And we don't quite see what the price is, the price is that we pay for it. Now I've sort of seen it in Africa yeah. myself. And we pay a tremendous human cost for this stuff. Yeah. That keeps us uh, in contact with each other. And I think yeah. uh, we can't go back, you know, we can't put the, uh, the, the genie back in the, the bottle. bottle. But we can do something to make things right. Yeah, we can adapt. And we make enough money, we can go back there and sort this out overnight. Yeah. Why, do we, why don't we do it? I don't know. Cause, and I think the reason is not because of uh, ignorance, it's because it's just not salient. Hmm. And the problem is we're on a path of trying to fix the problems like climate change and everything else like with the same thinking that caused it. Mm-hmm. And we'll go back to Ian McGilchrist here. Doubling down on eco-modernism approach. Yeah. yeah, and sort of saying, no, let's, you know, technology caused all these problems in the environment, you know, didn't mean to, you know, mm-hmm. didn't, nobody could predict it. I'm like, you can't fault people for this, right? But, you know, but now we can. Yeah. You know. Well, we've been going on about it for at least 70 years, and, and there's, there's cases of over 100 years well, ago, it was, it was noticed as Swedish uh, physicists talked about that. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. And, and there's always sort of people who sort of, People weren't, you know, could yeah. see what was coming, but you know, but as a a popular movement, as a sort of general level of raising the consciousness, it's still not there yet to the point. I don't think it's there. I tell, what what I think is the biggest problem, um, and, and I've said this in a paper somewhere, but is that what we really have to ask people for, and I do not think people are capable of doing anymore, is suffering. Um, we. Now, when I say suffering, I don't mean we're getting needles in the arms. I mean, we're not going to have grapes from Chile. I mean, we're not going to fly on two holidays a year. I mean, we're not going to have all clean clothes all the time and be able to use all the chemicals that we have free access to now for Mm -hmm. everything, for cleaning our walls or cleaning whatever we like. We're not going to be able to ring up and have any food we want delivered to the door. This, by... 
coming down on these things, reducing our standard of living, reducing the complexity of our society, that would now be called suffering. Uh, it doesn't need to be. But that is a hard sell. And that is especially a hard sell if you're a politician trying to get into a position right, okay. that you might be able to make a difference. Mm -hmm. So I don't see how democracy and the way we have it set up is going to be able to sell this change because we're going we're, how are we going to sell people to have less when we've conditioned them and indoctrinated them into this greed is good world that we've had since the 80s at least how how do we change these people's minds to say actually suffering now it might not even be good for you but if we can suffer a little bit now we might allow generations into the future to prosper, to flourish, well, and however well, you want to say. Well, oh, well, a couple of things. One is that, um, you know, I'm a bad example in the sense that I, I thrived on challenges and stuff like that. But I do notice that people don't want to be challenged. They, they don't, uh, physically, don't want to be physically challenged. I'm the chairman of a gym in the west of Galway, and we have a devil of a time getting people in. Hmm. And, they, and, and there's people my age, and they should know that the best anti-aging thing to do is to go to the gym. Yeah. There's no question about it. The debate's over. Yeah. And, you know, we just don't see them. And people know that they should be there. They know they should be eating right. You know, mm -hmm. sort of like, you know why don't they do it? And it's, I think it's because they don't see other people doing it. You know, it's not a... Mm -hmm. They just hear about it, but they don't... Sort of, it's not salient in their lives. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, it's not culturally relevant yet. All I can hope for is that as time goes by, and the next sort of bunch of fifty years will take the gym or whatever. Yeah. But uh, going back to um, Ian McGilchrist, and I think it's really important what he says is that uh, you know our society is built on this left brain materialistic thinking, and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is it hasn't incorporated our more expansive right brain thinking, and our and I think of that in a practical way as the, the listening part. And the reason I say that is because I noticed that a lot of, with all the social media is that there's very little listening going on. Mm. You know, I'm sort of, and one of the things I've learned you know, in, in my years is that when you go to these places, I go to these places and I don't speak the language and stuff like that, but I try and listen. Hmm. And the most, of everything that's ever got me out of trouble is just by just staying calm and listening to what, the, what was going on. Not by arguing, not by pleading, not never by begging, fuck that. But you know, just by just listening. Yeah. And, uh, and I think Ian McCruise, I, I, I just did that experientially as a, a, a tactic, as you'd like, but it worked. But I think he's on the right track in saying that, you know, sort of like the first step is that to just appreciate that there is something other than the material life hmm. right i'm very eager to read a book by robert sapolsky about determinism because oh, it's yeah. ultra it's out you know because it's, uh, it's that deterministic argument is ultra materialistic you know that you know it's only about things and how things bounce off each other and stuff like that but i don't think that's true i, I simply don't think that's true i think we live in a probabilistic world where you sort of like you know we have things are preordained and that we have a choice, you know. And like, you know, to sort of say it's all deterministic, it's like, 
Oh, I was I was reading um uh thing about Harum Harum Rabbi. Sorry, I've forgotten the name. Sorry, the the Babylonian king Harum Rabbi Harum Rabbi Harum Rabbi. Okay. Yeah, Harum. And he's re- this is just a, after our last uh, conversation, and he introduced two really important ideas. It's like. Up until that time, I'm talking about about um, 1200 BC or 1400 BC. Uh, if you had a problem, somebody did you wrong, the law was set up to compensate you to make things better for you. When her, 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 this guy came along, her, which I can't pronounce, Harum Harumarabi. Thank you very much. Uh, he introduced two things. One is the presumption of innocence, which is fantastic. Mm. Oh, it's an amazing invention, but the other side of it was that the emphasis on justice should be on persecution of the guilty. Okay, so retributive justice. Yeah, and so like, you have this fantastic idea. And I think, and we're so embedded in this sort of idea of paying, you pay a price for your sins, mm-hmm. that, you know, what must have been like beforehand, you know, before he introduced this code, that, you know, you know, come down to the centuries, to the Greeks, to us, you know, like, we live by it. You know, it's, yeah. it's part of Christianity that you're going to go to hell. Yeah. And, but what if you didn't have that? What if you had to think that any justice was about compensation? And I'm just working through the idea at the moment, but it's like, you know, hmm. if something is wrong, maybe it should not be so much about, you know, locking them up somewhere, but sort of trying to make, recompense you in some way. Make amends somehow. Yeah, sort of like, you know, sort of working out some other way, but we're so locked into this idea of punishment for bad doing that mm. uh, we don't think there can be there can be another way. But apparently, in history, it was another way up until that point. And, like, and we're talking about tens of thousands, you know, maybe millions of years, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, not millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years. That was, and, like, you know, we talk about, you know, you talk about narrative as well, stuff yeah. like that. And then sort of, the, the really interesting thing about narrative is that, this is something for you. I mean, it's like, it's very, I think you have to be careful not to have narrative as, as an isolation, but to view it as a relationship. And like, you know, and my evidence for this is that uh, if you look at the works of Chaucer, then at Shakespeare, then at uh, the, 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 the dictionary written by Samuel Johnson, only like 100, 110 years later, maybe that, 110 years, uh, 17, yeah, yeah, about that, yeah. And, uh, how much language changed mm. just in that very very short period of time and people were writing it down and codifying it yeah and you know so that must mean all those years ago that uh, language is a dynamic uh aspect of our life that you know maybe it shouldn't be codified to the extent that it is maybe it should just be a like okay this you know things will change over time and we accept that like, you know, grammar Nazis are just stupid people, right? <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's always going to change. Yeah, and language has always and will always be changing. But because it's a, a changing thing, it's almost like a living thing, that means yeah. it's something that we can have a relationship with rather than have something that's imposed or constructs our daily lives in a very firm and direct way. Hmm. Uh, do you get to see where I'm going with that? It's like, you know, it's not like, um, you know, I know, you're a, I know what you're saying is very important about narrative. But I think yeah. it's sort of, as part of a large dimension of relationship and connection and uh, development and ad- evolutionary uh, adaptation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Maybe you should explain what you mean by narrative. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that that that's that's going to be a that's going to be a whole podcast, and I'm not sure narrative, the word narrative fully explains it either. Uh, but I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think we give enough emphasis to language being what makes humans special, if we are special, um, and that there's a massive downward force from language onto humans. So we come into a world, now this is of course not my ideas, this has come through the existentialists and that, but we're thrown into a world of language, of concepts, that we have had no influence in making really, at least not individually. And uh, when we come into the world, we learn language. And through that language, we get concepts in our brain. We visualize the world through these concepts. We grasp the world through words. Uh, I think it was Lacan that talked about the, the very first time a child recognizes itself in a, in a mirror and a parent is pointing to the child saying, you, me, you, and me. Mm -hmm. And this is a moment of change where the child can point to something and say, you, and me. Separation, yeah. And it's that moment of atomization comes, mm -hmm. and that's impossible without language. Mm -hmm. And I think that the left side of the brain that McGillcrest talks about, that's impossible without language. Our grasping of the world, our, our, like the right side of the brain has the holistic view. The left side of the brain is able to take concepts and take ideas and shift them around and come up with calcul calculations and 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 uh, it has a temporal existence, as in we have a biographical existence. We have a a story that we're within. We all have our own story. We all find our own place in a story, in a narrative that's constantly, that's constantly, as you say, it's living, it's alive. Mm -hmm. this, I mean, this the story of me. Mm -hmm. And the story of me and the story of you are now together in yeah. some way. And then possibly our stories might influence somebody, the listeners. Mm -hmm. so, so this is all in the world of language. This is all in the world of concepts that is impossible without language. I do not think uh, like everything is narrative and, and it, uh, I still haven't fully worked out this part of this part of the process of this of this podcast is to help me get a PhD proposal together. <laughs> so so I'm still trashing through this myself. But uh and I was warned before, stay away from the philosophy of language. Once you go in, you'll never come out. And I feel like I've gone in and I'm worried that I'll never come out because <laughs> I can't find the door. Right. But uh, but I think that there's, there's some things with language. There's, there's some epiphanies that I've had with language that I do not know how to leave down. Sure. That I think uh, we don't give enough credence to. And I think part of... of uh, part of what we need to fix the problems that we've talked about is a new story and I don't know if that involves having a new language but we need a new story of what it is to be human in relation to the rest of nature 
Because right. the way we have it now, uh, that we're special and the rest of nature is pretty much just there for us, you know, just waiting for us to grab it and make something out of it. God, we are so hubristic. God, we really think that the couple of billions of years this earth has been here is just for us. Mm -hmm. And then what's the purpose of us? Mm -hmm. To create a little bit of dopamine. That's it. That's yeah. that's the pinnacle of humanity. Dopamine, some good feelings, and that's it. Life out, and that that's the purpose of everything. Right. I just I'm, I'm not down with that. And I think there's a the world of language. The, the the kind of social reality that we that we dwell in of language has created a lot of confusion. I think it's created a lot of separation between humans and nature. And I think that separation is continuing a lot. Um, and it's continuing a lot through technology, which is also impossible without language. But the technology that, as you talked about, the, the, the technology has taken us away from nature. First of all, we've built our houses, we're safe. We travel in metal boxes with engines. We get our information off devices we keep in our pockets. We don't really have to come into contact with nature very much now. No, no. We don't have to come in contact with it at all. And very soon, and if we're not there already, we I won't. think it's even worse than that. I don't think we come come into contact with each other. Uh, that's where I was going. I think where we're heading now is that we won't even have to come into contact with other humans. I mean, right now, we don't need other strangers. I mean, I can go to Dublin now, find my way around any any of the back streets, find anything I want without having to talk to somebody. If I had gone to Dublin 20, 30 years ago, I would have had to ask at least five people where something is or where what is, and, 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 and that's part of life that that was part yeah. of life and that was part of life going back to eternity i can't remember Forever, yeah. when that wouldn't be part of life so these are major changes that are happening i feel like social changes yeah. that are atomizing people making us feel even more self-sufficient and powerful right yeah but i think there's a super danger to that a super danger not only are we stepping away from nature we're stepping away from each other mm -hmm. and that this hyper individualized person is not somebody I like very much to be honest it's not somebody I'd like well, to be I, I, I think it's even I think it's worse than your personal predilection for liking or disliking somebody I think it's worse because it's absolutely dangerous to our survival mm. uh, because yeah. um, if you look at the collapse of the, the Greek Empire or it wasn't an empire but the Greek state and uh, the Roman Empire uh unpopular opinion but what happened was that uh, they became they went from you know all those great plays that the Greeks wrote were written amongst famine and wars and stuff like that when peace came and the administrators took over both in Greece and in Rome when the administrators took over the administrating of the state became the most important thing it became uh, uh, what's the word um it became a abstract, you know. Yeah. It became abstract, you know, like you know, like uh, uh, that. Uh, and when people were living in abstract times, the structure or the underlying energy that built that society faded away. So all that was left at the end was the abstraction. That's nothing. 
Yeah. But an abstraction. Yeah. And these uh, societies collapsed. Mm. And I think that's what we're, that was that's what we see throughout history, is that you know once we sort of give over our power to abstractions and uh, uh, the bureaucratic class, which is only solely built upon abstractions, mm. then then the end is nigh. The end is nigh. Yeah. So we should just stop on that. Uh, <laughs> on, on that cheery thought. <laughs> no, uh, but I mean, sort of seriously though, I was sort of, we have to stop thinking of other people as being other people, but as people just like us. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're just human, and they're not instrumental. They're not there as a means to an end for us. Yeah. They're just our companions on this journey. Yeah, and and although they're like us. Their being isn't necessarily like yeah, us. We're, we're, Their way of life is not necessarily yeah. the same of ours. And ours is not necessarily better. Yeah, we have to be careful of that. You know, yeah. Because we have benefits. The benefits don't always outweigh the, the, the problems. Costs, yeah. Yeah. The costs, yeah. Okay, Tom, this has been great. I definitely hope to get you back here. We have more to say about the, the narrative and what we can do in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but thanks very much for sharing your uh, your career with us and sharing. I, I know you're reluctant to talk about these things, and and I, I really appreciate you coming on here and having this chat. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad, we, I'm glad we got the philosophy in there because it's all, it's all very all taking actions in the world, but you have to think about them as well. That's true. You know, that's what I'm saying. That's true. And as we know, talking is thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Dahi. Thank you very much.